Well, today is Veterans Day, uh, and in case you came in a little late, we did have a time of thanking veterans for their service. This day was chosen as Veterans Day. Does anybody know why? What was it? Somebody yell it out. I heard World War One. Armistice Day, right. So this was the, 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 one of the final countries signed a document to cease hostilities ending World War I. On this day, exactly 100 years ago, on the 11th month, the 11th day, and what time is it? Look at your watch right now. Now, I had a hard time looking up. It's 11 o'clock right now. How about that? Now, that was probably like local time in Germany or something, but still, I think it's cool. Here we are on the 11th, 100 years later today, this hour, give or take a few. World War I was not known by that name to any of the people involved at that time. In fact, that name would have been nonsensical to them. What, what do you mean, World War I? That's ridiculous. How did they refer to the war? Well, it was to some the Great War, and to others, maybe more optimistically, it was what? The war to, the war to end all wars. But we call it World War I. Why? Because there was a two. And there were more. And the reason that we are still thanking veterans today is that there have been numerous wars around the world. It was not the war to end all war. You see, they thought at that time that if they had the right ideas and they carried those ideas out in the right way, that would triumph. That would win. War would go away. It would be this this disease that would be cured. And that was the cure. It was the final hardship of the world, this awful world war. And that would be it. But it didn't work. It didn't end war. Conflict ceased for a while. And we had World War II. And then another war. And another war. And another war. And they still go on today. Which raises the question, how can true and lasting change take place? If The Great War, the war to end all wars, was not the true and lasting change that this world needed. How then can true and lasting change take place? Is it even possible? Which then raises other questions. What kind of change? What causes change? And what are we hoping to change to? What's the goal? What's the destination? And that's what I want to look at today. We've been talking about the guardrails, these nine biblical core values. Now, roads don't really have nine guardrails. That would be awkward. I don't know where you would drive. But it works for the series, okay? And so we, t- we covered the first three last week. Uh, we looked at being passionately God-centered, dependent on God, and rooted in the Word of God. And today I want to talk about where is it we're going? What, what's our destination? Where are we headed? And how is it that we're hoping to get there? Because these things matter. Imagine, it's not that hard to imagine right now, but imagine, see, I park outside. My car sits outside um, because my wife gets inside the garage and the kids' bikes. That's basically the way it works, and my car goes outside. 
So imagine I get up in the morning and I come out and my car is covered with snow and ice. This is a typical day for me in the winter. Now, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, do I really want to spend the time freezing my fingers, scraping this, eye off, this ice off, trying to get my car warmed up? Is that what I want to do? And I think, no, that's not what I want to do. I'm just going to walk. I'll choose the way that I'm going to travel is, is I'll just walk. Now, if I'm going to Indianapolis for a pastor's conference, that's a bad idea. My, my destination, the, the place I'm heading, determines how I need to get there. Now, imagine another morning, same situation, come out, cars covered with snow and ice, and I think, I'm not going to walk, it's freezing out. That, that would be just silly, so I take the hour and I clear the ice off my car, and, uh, you know, because I can't find the scraper, so I've got the credit card out, and I'm trying that, and it's, it's a whole to-do. And, and trying to warm up the car, which takes forever. And, and finally, I, I get in the car. This is great. I'm really comfortable. I pull out my driveway. I drive the 50 feet to my mailbox, get the mail, turn around and go back home. Now, that would be foolish, right? That would not be the way to travel because the place I'm headed is my mailbox. It's right there. I mean, I could have been there and back like 50 times. So how we travel and where we are headed are, are connected. And so we've been looking at this idea of nine biblical core values. These are, as a church, these are our core values. These are things the leaders take and use to evaluate what we're doing and how we're doing it. But also the reason that these are the core values for us as a church is that they are really good core values, guardrails to keep us on track as individuals in our lives. And so today we're going to be talking about number four and number five, grace-driven transformation and becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. So let's talk a little bit about grace-driven transformation. This is the how we travel. How are we getting where it is we're going? We'll talk about where we're going in a second. How is it that change happens? How does God change us, or are we left to change ourselves? What is the hope to change this world? We've stated it this way as a church. This is coming right off of our our core value sheets, which if you're a visitor and you pick up the thing that we have that I refer to every week, this is probably in there. We are passionate about the gospel's power to bring about long-lasting transformation into the image of Christ. Our gratefulness for God's saving grace through Christ positions and motivates us to eagerly and intentionally cooperate with the Holy Spirit and access the empowering grace of God in a lifelong process of being made more like Jesus. I want to take this in two sections. First of all, what is the transformation that we're talking about? Why talk about transformation? This implies that a change is necessary, that there is something within us that needs to change. Now, some don't like this. Some don't want to hear that I want to change or that I should change or that you should change. That comes across as very judgmental. Who are you to say that I should change? Why does anybody need to change? But there are others. There are those that when they hear this, it is a very freeing bit of information. Because there are those that I think every day are are weighed down with guilt and a struggle. Something is not right. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but I'm struggling in my life. Something is not right. 
Or we turn on the news, we turn on the TV, we go on the internet, something is not right in this world. And in the gospel, the news that transformation needs to happen and is possible, that is so offensive to some, is so liberating to others. That's it. Things need to change. There is the possibility of change. But then there are also those that don't want to hear this message. That, that It's like going to the doctor and hearing that you have a, a horrible sickness or a disease or a defect. You don't want to hear it. But is it loving of the doctor to just say, well, man, he might be really upset by this, so I just won't tell him. There's this wonderful cure, but I better not tell him because he'll be really mad at me. Would that be loving of the doctor? Now, certainly the news that something needs to take place, a surgery or a medication, that news is not what we want to hear. We didn't go to the doctor assuming, at least in this case, that, that some big thing was going on. Maybe it was just a checkup. But for the doctor to say there is a problem, and then also to say, but there is also a cure. That's the kind of change we want. It helps those who don't see the need for change to listen intently to what the change is that is necessary in our world and in our lives and to know that there is a change possible. The Christian life involves being changed. It is an ongoing transformation of who we are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul lists all of these sins going on in their culture and they're still going on in our culture today. It's a long list of things that a lot of Christians would not know. But then look at what he says. See, he's talking to the church here. This is, these are Christians. And that is what some of you were. Oh no, not Christians. We're perfect. We're like righteous and holy and our halos are shiny. And, and Paul's like, no. This, these horrible sinful things that you want to point your finger at the culture and go, oh, you horrible people. He says, that's what you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you have been transformed. You're not who you were. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he's addressing another church. And like so many churches of that day and so many churches today, they were struggling. Struggling in their culture, struggling in a world that seemed to be turning against them. But he says to this struggling church, and I think it's so applicable to individuals as well who are struggling, to say being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God never quits. He doesn't give up on us. He knows what he's doing. He is working that change in our lives that he knows needs to take place. It says, he who began. God does this work. It's not our work to do. We don't fix ourselves. He who began the good work, and we'll talk about that in a minute, will carry it on. He continues the work. Until the day of Christ Jesus, God doesn't stop until Christ returns. He's not done with you yet. Transformation happens as Christ changes us from the inside out. 
This change allows us to be able to reshape and have our thinking reformed as we can see more clearly what is true, what is false, what is right, and what is wrong. And we are able to choose and walk toward that which is right as God works in our hearts. It is both Christ's work which enables that, and then our obedience which lives that out in faith that it's going on. But there's something else we must understand, or we're going to get this all wrong. Because I I think too often, some forms, some kind of strands of Christianity stop here and they say, you're broken, fix yourself, work harder, work this out, you've got to do better, And, and maybe... Maybe you were brought up in a situation like that. Do better. Work harder. What's wrong with you? Fix yourself. And here's where we must understand grace. What does grace-driven transformation truly mean? Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Eager to do what is good. Who's doing the changing? Who's doing the transformation here? It's God. So so when we change the gospel and we preach a gospel or we preach a religion or Christianity that puts all the burden on ourselves, you better shape up or get out, that's a lie. That's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is God changes us through grace. Why? Why? One of my favorite illustrations ever because I get to use an obscure Star Wars reference. It's this. My family probably knows right away what it is. There's a scene in Star Wars, episode four. The good ones. So, so Luke, anybody never, no, don't say that. Don't admit you never saw Star Wars. That would be bad. So Luke is buying robots, right? They call them droids for his uncle. And, and they're all lined up. These, these kind of pirates basically have stolen these things and they're selling them back to people. And Luke goes up to one and he picks it. And it starts following him. And all of a sudden, it it kind of bursts into flames and sparks and smoke. And Luke, in his typically whiny voice in that movie, says, Uncle Owen, this one's got a bad... Does anybody know what he says? Motivator. Thank you. This one's got a bad motivator. Now... I don't build robots, okay? So I don't really know exactly what a motivator is on a robot. But that scene and that line from Luke Skywalker sticks with me. Because we have got broken motivators. Our motivation is is what causes us to want to do something. That's our motivation. We are motivated by our emotions. What do we enjoy? What feels good? We're motivated by our will. What do I want to do? What do I choose to do? We're motivated by our desires. 
What is it I hope to achieve? What do I hope to gain? What am I headed towards? And the Bible says that sin has come in and infected our motivation so that we cannot even want the change that should take place in us. So imagine going up to somebody with a broken motivator, unable to want what they should want, and telling them, you better shape up and do better. That's the worst message in the world, because you can't do it. External laws don't work. You're going to take somebody that can't even want to do the right thing and put a list of rules up on the, the, the wall. Well, do this and you'll be a better person. Here's 10 things not to do. Here's 10 things to do. Just work harder. Try more. Or, there's another solution that our culture has tried, which is simply take the things that we want to do and just declare them good. Well, if they're all good, then it just doesn't matter. We'll just change the definitions. I'm no genius, but I look around at our culture, and I'm pretty certain it's still broken. People are still angry. People still have no hope. With all the changes our culture is making, we are not changing the human heart. That's where the brokenness is. All of this just puts an immense pressure on us. Something is wrong, whether it's my definitions or my actions or my attitudes or, or maybe other people's opinions of me, but it's still all on me. I've got to try to change that. It's no wonder people are being crushed under the oppressive weight of the message, fix yourself. But that's not how God works. God works through grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How are you saved? By grace. Not God coming to us and saying, here's the standard, better live up to it. Let's see how you do. Well, this year you got a C, this year a D minus. It's not how God works. He says, I know your motivator's broken. I know your heart is going in the wrong direction. I will go in and I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Grace is God giving us or doing something for us that we do not deserve. That's grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve and earn the opposite. But God gives grace. The Bible says that sin deserves to be punished. By death. Christ stepped in and said, I will take your death. I will stand in your place. I will die in your place. I will take the punishment off of you, put it on myself. We didn't earn that. We don't deserve that. That's grace. The Bible says then, we must be cleansed. We must be purified. We should rid ourselves of all sin. God says, but I know you can't do it yourselves. So I will change you from the inside out. I will put my presence, my Holy Spirit in your life to transform you, to fix your very motivations and change what you want, desire, and choose so that you will be changed, transformed. It's all of God. Everything that God requires for us, Christ has accomplished for us. That's grace. 
That's the truth of the Christian message. It's not do better. It's the better is already done. It is finished. That's what Christ declared on the cross before he hung his head and gave up his life. But grace, please hear me. Always in scripture, God's grace changes us. Because on the opposite extreme of some of the things I've been talking about, I fear sometimes that Christianity has accepted this idea of a ticket into heaven. Come forward, hear this wonderful gospel message. And and come forward to an altar, kneel, pray a prayer, give your life to Christ, and that's it, you're in. That's not the message of the Bible. Are you in? Absolutely. Are you saved? Definitely. But God's not done with you yet. You are saved for something. Grace never leaves us the way we are. What good would it do to be gracious to someone that is hurting, broken, or even sick and to leave them that way? That's not loving. Grace is what transforms. We are saved and put on a path, a journey. And what is it in this journey that we are heading toward? And that's where we see becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. This is not only one of our core values, it is the very essence of of our mission statement as a church, to make and become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. This is our goal. This determines what we do as a church. We hope that you come and enjoy time together. We hope that you come and and enjoy the coffee or, or enjoy talking to each other. We hope that Usually we can have pie after special services. We hope for those things. We like those things. We hope that you make friendships. We hope that you enjoy the, the, the music. We, we hope that you get something out of the sermons. But at the root of all of it is that if all of that were to struggle or go away, the central question for us as a church, and I think for us as Christians, is am I... Becoming more and more a fully devoted follower of Christ. We state it this way in our core values. We see discipleship as a lifelong commitment to follow Jesus. As we increasingly strive to learn from and obey him, abide in him, and sacrifice for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. We will live out our lives and give our resources to Christ for the expansion of his kingdom. It's all about him. We are headed towards Him, walking in Him, following Him, growing in Him. I like to think of this, or think of this as the idea of of being saved to something. What, it's easy to talk about what am I saved from, right? So, so I'm saved in Christian terms, I'm saved from my sins, I'm saved from death. But then too often we just stop there. It's, it's like giving birth to a baby and then going, hey, congratulations, you're in this world, good luck. No, no, they're, They're not just born, they're born to something. They're born to a family, they're born to a life, to a hope, to a future. And we see it as our goal, I hope, as parents to nurture them along the way. You're born to something. In the same way, we are saved to something. We are saved to a new life. We are saved to a new hope. We are saved to a changed heart. And ultimately, we are saved to a changed world as Christ will work out His plan of salvation in this world. Let's look at how Scripture 
explains this. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 27, then he said, or 227, he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You see the change that takes place? That grace comes in and saves us to something, to follow Jesus Christ? In in a way that is out of line with the world so often, but he says, what good is it? What good is it to give up everything and lose yourself? Or to gain everything, rather, and lose yourself? So let's break this apart just as we did with the first one. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Why followers? We talk often today in the church about being a believer. Have you accepted Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And that's good. But the Bible uses this term much more often, a follower of Christ. When Jesus called his disciples, he didn't sit down with them with kind of a a multiple choice question. Do you believe in, you know, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, or me, Jesus Christ, Lord of all? You know, check the box. That's, That's not how he came to them. He looked at them and he said, you, follow me. Let's go. Follow. There was this wonderful, rich tradition in their culture of a disciple following a rabbi. And the rabbi would come along and choose disciples. And that's exactly how he would call them. Come, follow me. Be where I am, watch what I do, listen to what I say. And implied in that was this ongoing transformation that the disciples were to become like the rabbi by spending time with the rabbi. They had a phrase. The disciple was to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. As the rabbi would walk, his his sandals would flick up dirt from the back of his shoes. And the disciples were to be so close to the rabbi that they would get hit by it. Be covered in the dust of your rabbi. How close are you walking? How closely are you following? It was a way of life. It was a complete transition in their life to stop being, in some cases, the fishermen or whatever else they were, and to start being the follower of the rabbi. And so Jesus came to these guys that understood this principle, and when he said follow, they left their nets, they left their families, and they said, I'm following the rabbi. My job is to be wherever he is, to go where he goes, to listen to what he does, what he says, what he teaches, and to become more like him. It was a fully changed way of life defined by following. And then he says, in in this core value, not only are we following, but we are becoming fully devoted. What does it mean to be a fully devoted follower? At its root, it means you cannot serve Christ and, and put anything there. A fully devoted follower of Christ. I mean, think about it. If, if the fishermen of the disciples had tried to pack up their boat with them. Oh yeah, Christ, I'll follow you. Hold on, let me get the nets and the boat. I'll just put it on my back. And no big deal. We could travel from town to town and preach. It's no big deal. I'll just carry the boat right with me. No problem. No, no. I'll catch up. Maybe if you could slow down just a little bit, I'll I'll be there. No, they had to leave it behind. They had to be fully devoted. Jesus Christ is not one among many options in this world. 
There's, there's not some menu of joy and happiness and peace and truth in this world that pre- is presented to humanity and you can choose this way or this way, maybe a little side of Christianity and a little side of this and just mix them all together and you'll find something that works. That's not the truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' words in John 14, 6. So here's the deal. Please, if, if you have a mindset of, of combining religions, please take Christianity out of that menu. Because Jesus is either the only way, or he's a complete liar, and he is no way at all. Jesus' words do not allow that option. And so when our culture and our world tries to combine these things and say, well, just pick and choose from these various things, they're not really reading what these things are about. There's a great story of a, a guy falling off a cliff. And he's, he goes over the edge and he's holding onto a branch and he's slipping. He knows this is it, like, like he can't hold on any longer. And as he's slipping, he cries out to God to save him. Save me. I'll do anything you want. Just save me. And God says, okay. Here's what I want you to do. Let go of the branch. I'll catch you. I've got this. You let go of the branch. And the guy thinks for a minute and then he goes, um, is there anybody else I can talk to? <laughs> See, we hold on to branches in our lives. We, we want to hold on to these things that, that give hope and meaning and help us through the moment. And Jesus says, I am everything for you. Trust me. Follow me. Be fully devoted. The final part of this is becoming. We are becoming. We are not there yet. There is not a single person in this room, including myself, that is perfect. Amen? Amen. We need to tell ourselves that and remind ourselves of it often. I am not there yet. I'm not perfect. We need to have grace then for others. God's not done with the other person yet. Are they frustrating to you? Sure. If we ask them, are you frustrating to them? Probably. God's not done yet. We need to have grace for ourselves. How many times do we beat ourselves up? We say, well, how come I'm not there yet? We need to stop and say, God's not done with me yet. Frankly, we also need to have some grace for this world. Christians, we're just becoming so hateful and awful, just constantly pointing the sins out in the world. Jesus had the harshest criticism for those who claim to know the truth and be followers of God. The fingers pointing at sin in the world really need to start with us. God's got that. He'll deal with it. But he says, you, follow me. I'll take care of them. You, follow me. We're not there yet, but in Christ we are on our way. We are being changed. We are being transformed. So let me ask you, where are you headed? What's your, your motivation? What, where are you headed toward? Are you going for just personal fulfillment? Just want to be a, a, a wealthy individual, a fulfilled individual, a happy individual? Maybe you just want to be religious. I want to be very open and take it all in. Let me challenge you today. Be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Where are you going? How are you getting there? Grace-driven transformation says that we journey through this life based on the grace 
of Jesus Christ. That's what changes us from the inside out. And the destination, the ongoing place that we're headed toward, our GPS needs to be set, set eternally on becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. Christ went to the cross to save us. That's grace. He rose from the grave promising eternal life to all who believe and He calls us to follow Him in that new life. That's also grace. Grace that saves and grace that changes and transforms. Trusting in Christ as your Savior is just the beginning of a great journey of going deeper and following Christ, knowing more about the grace that God has given to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we live in a world that puts so much pressure on us to think correctly, act a certain way, don't think certain things, don't act certain ways. And then we look in the mirror and we do it to ourselves over and over again. God, we are all broken. And I pray today, if there's anyone who has not accepted that important truth in their life, may today, may today be a moment where they admit, I am broken. I need fixing. We cannot fix ourselves. But your grace is powerful. Your son died and rose again that we might be transformed by something that we could not accomplish And the gospel comes in and says, it is by grace you are saved. Through faith. This is not from yourself. We thank you for that gift, Father, that changes us. And then may we who have accepted that grace then say, I will follow Christ. I will allow Him to determine my priorities. I will allow Him to determine truth. Come what may, that we might be fully devoted followers of Christ, changed by grace along the way. In the powerful, hope-filled name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.